Yeah, we're in a, in a short little mini-series about the people who know their God. Uh, we're looking at people who stood firm and who took action. I guess what has inspired this series at this time is just a call for the church to once again rise up, stand up, be the church, be God's people in culture, and to, I guess, come out of the doldrums of the last year and a half and to once again uh, represent him in our culture. So last week we looked at a guy called Jonathan and his armor bearer and the stand that they took against a small group of Philistines that then seemed to just take the cork out of the bottle for God's power to, to break out and deliver his people and how it affected those who were hiding and it affected those who had left and defected over to the Philistines class little story in 1 Samuel chapter 14. So still in 1 Samuel today and we're going to look at another person who stood firm and took action. She is one of my favorite little characters in the in the scripture in terms of one of these people again who just briefly steps on to the pages of scripture and just how she carries herself, what she does changes history and then she steps off again and her name is Abigail Abigail so we're going to look at the story of Abigail first Samuel 25 is a reasonably long chapter I'm not going to read all of it I'm going to read the first 13 verses and then we will dip in and out as we go through so this is first Samuel 25 and verse 1 now Samuel had died And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Can't help but say that word Calebite and think it was like an Old Testament snack. But it's not. It means he's descended from Caleb. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you, 
strap on your sword. And we'll stop there. Let's just ask God to bless his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the record of it, of this incident and this incredible woman, Abigail. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today as we spend time just meditating on this story. Would you take it? Would you powerfully put it within us? Give us the ability to mix it with faith and to actually be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So David's life up to this point, in in a nutshell, he's been anointed by Samuel, the prophet. He's gone to work in Saul's house. He's a gifted musician who has this God-anointed ability as he plays. Saul just feels better and he feels calmer and the spirits that trouble him leave him. David has had this great victory over Goliath, as we mentioned this week. I think that was inspired by Jonathan's previous victory. So he has this great victory over Goliath, trusting God and using a sling. That's important. He uses a sling in order to defeat the giant. But then he's driven away by Saul. Saul goes mad in his jealousy. The, The interaction of Saul and David is actually really, really powerful. There's a great little book called A Tale of Three Kings. And the first half of the book is about David and Saul. And the second half is about David and Absalom. The name of the author just has left me, but it is fantastic. And as he's been driven away by Saul, David has set up camp in the wilderness. He's been joined by a band of discontented men, initially in a cave at Adullam. And David is forming them into a community, into an army. And David in the wilderness writes songs. And and while he's there and he's away from God's people in the city and he's on his own and he's on the run, one of the things that he longs for is to be in the house of God, to be in the presence of God. And he writes about beholding the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27. David in the wilderness misses beauty. It's a, we think of the wilderness, I guess, as a, as a beautiful place because we're surrounded by such lush green beauty all over the place. But it was probably a bit more barren there than what we're used to. And David misses beauty. And his heart yearns to behold the beauty of the presence of the Lord. He writes also a couple of Psalms later, Psalm 29, about worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And one of the things that that David did whenever Saul was given him peace, David and his men would have gone around the wilderness and protected people. You read stories of places like Keilah, where, where David comes to the rescue of people that are being oppressed. I have a photograph of David and his men from that time. There they are. You can almost hear the music, yes? If you're under, I don't know, 35 maybe or 30, like you don't know who those guys are. But the rest of us had a misspent youth on Saturday afternoons. And this is what I think of when I think of David's men in the wilderness, keeping people safe, protecting people, and then just disappearing off into the sunset again. Yes, that's the very one. Um, And David... Would, would always seek God about battles. You read, I think around about 1 Samuel 23, over and over again, he goes and he seeks God. Should I do this? Will you be with me? And, and, and he only goes into battle when God 
tells him and blesses what, he, what he's going to do. In 1 Samuel 24, he has an opportunity to kill Saul. That hilarious moment, I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago, where David and his men are hiding at the back of a cave and Saul goes into the same cave to take a leak. <laughs> and you've got David and his men hiding in the corner behind a rock. And David sneaks out and cuts a wee bit off the hem of his garment and then feels conscience stricken about it and tells Saul what has happened. He refuses to to stretch out his hand and kill Saul, even though the opportunity appears to have presented itself. He trusted God to fight his battles for him rather than him doing it. But now he's tired. He's tired. Saul has been pursuing him. And when you've got a Saul in your life who's pursuing you, better get rid of that. When you've got a Saul in your life who is pursuing you, it is wearying. And he's tired of living on the run. Of just constantly moving at speed. Constantly having to react. Where is Saul? I need to react and move my man away from where Saul is. He's tired. He's weary. There's not a lot of beauty around him. And the voice that, that called him and anointed him king, has died. Samuel has died. In case you're wondering who wrote the rest of the books of Samuel, obviously it wasn't Samuel. Uh, The books are pitched at that time in history when Samuel was the prophet. Uh, Scholars believe that Ezra might have finished the job and recorded what, what, what is here in these books. But Samuel's dead. Samuel, who had, who had started this great story in David's life, he's gone. There's no beauty. There's a lot of tiredness. The one who brought God's voice to him is dead. And David is weary. So in the context of our story then, it is sheep shearing time. And David goes to a guy called Nabal to ask if he can get some food. Now, Nabal means fool. If you read Psalm 14, verse 1, that in your English Bible says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. In the Hebrew, it says, the Nabal says in his heart there is no God. The name Nabal means fool. The guy was pretty much called stupid. (laughs) It was a nickname. I don't think his parents gave him that name. I don't think they brought him to, to the font and got him sprinkled and named him Nabal. Stupid fool. But it was a nickname that he had because of his lifestyle. The way he treated people. The way he acted himself. He was just commonly known in the region as fool. There are plenty of Nabals about. He was a greedy man. A horrible man. He would look down his noses at other people and would not look after them or look out for him. There's a wonderful verse. In in verse 17 it says, He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. That's an Ulsterism if ever there was one. You ever heard somebody say this? There's just no talking to him. In fact, somebody said it to me this morning about 20 minutes ago. There's just no talking to him. Stubborn, difficult to work with, won't listen, won't take advice, won't acknowledge wrong and go back and change anything. This was Nabal. There's no talking to him. He might have been in Jesus' mind whenever Jesus told the parable in Luke of the rich fool. And David sees an opportunity for a good meal. It's a reasonable request. Out in the wilderness, David and his A-team have protected Nabal's sheep shearers. Looked after them. Kept them safe. 
And now David goes to Nabal and says, any chance of a bite to eat? I've looked after your men. Sheep shearing time was a festival. It was a party time. It wasn't like now where basically I'm told that you, you, you shear the sheep in order to look after them. You don't make an awful lot of money out of it. Would that be right? Sheep, sheep experts at the back. Um, it, it's, not, it's not going to bring in a lot of income. In fact, you're probably going to lose money in shearing them. But at that time, sheep shearing was celebration. It was income and it was party time and they would feast. And to go to Nabal at sheep shearing time and say, any chance of a good meal from my men, that would be like somebody coming to your house at about six o'clock on Christmas day and saying, any chance of a turkey sandwich and a mince pie? You're not likely to turn them away. You're not likely to say, I don't have any (laughs) or I don't have enough. You've probably got more than enough. And, and David goes and asks for, at festival time, uh, at party time, could we have some food? We looked after your men. And Nabal says no. Nabal shows his selfishness in verse 11. Why should I take my bread and my water, the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers, and give it to men coming from who knows where? Nabal refuses to help. And David then issues the call to arms. Strap on your swords, guys. We're going to battle. David is determined. You read in verse 21 and 22, May God deal with David ever so severely if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. What has happened to the man who fought Goliath on his knees with a sling and stones pulled from a river? What has happened to to the man who... Even though Saul was pursuing him and determined to kill him, when he had an opportunity to take Saul's life, he refused to do it. What has happened to the man who, when he would go into battle, would pray? Say, God, do I do this or not? Are you going to be with me or not? What is going on in David's life? He's not inquiring of the Lord. He's not on his knees. He's not fighting his battles in faith. He's now just driven by rage and anger. I really love the way the Bible just gives you everything about people. Even the ugly bits. And this is a really ugly bit in David's life. He's determined to just go in there and kill all around him. You might remember a guy a couple of weeks ago who showed up when we were doing Luke 16. No, not Luke 16. It was Message 16, it was Luke 6. Um, Will we ever get to Luke 16? (laughs) I don't know. Return good for good. This is E. Stanley Jones. And he says, return good for good and evil for evil. That's just legalistic. The other man's conduct determines yours. You have no moral standard of your own. You are an echo. If we just let the behavior of others dictate how we respond, then we are simply acting as an echo of their behavior. Don't be an echo. I have used that phrase several times uh, at home (laughs) over the last week or two, just saying, encouraging uh, kids going into school, don't be an echo. Don't respond to others the same way that they're treating you. Change the atmosphere. Change the environment. Don't be an echo. David has become an echo. He is weary. Do you ever get weary? (laughs) Just 
dog tired because you feel like you're constantly fighting. It could be work, it could be family or relationship issues, it could be financial issues, it could be just a bit of bad decision making about your time, lots of different things, but you're just dog tired and you're starting to act in a way that is out of character. You're starting to make decisions hastily that you would previously have sought God about, that you might have taken advice about. And David, I heard one guy saying, David is trying to get even with Nabal. And he made the point, if you try to get even with someone, then you become even with them, as in you become like them. (laughs) By trying to get even with Nabal, David's going to become a fool. He's going to become the same as Nabal is. And in the midst of this weariness of constant battle, his joy has been eroded. Have you been there? I've been there. I've even been there, I would say, in, in, in recent months, just with the, a, a crazy run in, in getting back to work and getting everything up and going, where your joy just gets eroded, your emotional energy levels are low, your physical energy levels are low, you get to the point you just don't even want to think that you're that tired. Somebody asks you a simple question, will we go here or will we go there? And you're just like, please make that decision for me because I'm too tired to think about it. David's battles are eroding his joy and he's lost sight. He can't see the beauty of God anymore in the wilderness. And his men, he has 600 men with him who know him, who have chosen to follow him because they like his heart. They like what they see in this man But I'm sure there's whispers among the 600. What's going on with David? He doesn't normally act as rashly as this. This is the guy who in the cave could have killed Saul and didn't. And now he's on a rampage. None of these men, 600 strong, strapping warriors with David, none of them had the courage to go to him and say, Boss, this is not right. This is not you. It's not the way you normally act. Something's going wrong. So who will stand before David and challenge him? Abigail does it. Abigail is described in verse 3 of the chapter as an intelligent and beautiful woman. Intelligent and beautiful. She had integrity. She had wisdom. And she was beautiful. Now, I'm always interested in, in a nice presentation. And I usually go and see what Christian artists have done in the past with a story or a character in the Bible. And sometimes I find something really good that I like to use. Uh, I went searching for pictures of Abigail to see if anybody had painted Abigail. Now remember, she is beautiful. Here's what I find. Are you ready for this now? (laughs) This is Abigail, the wife of David, according to the one artist I could find who had painted her. Um, just, <laughs> that's going to haunt your dreams, folks. I, I don't know whether this artist had read uh, verse 3 or not, but we'll just dispense with that picture and not use it anymore because I think she's terrifying. <laughs> I don't know what Nabal was like, but if that was the, the beauty beside him, he must have been pretty rough. <laughs> and the question has to be, when you read this, The question has to be, how did she end up with a Muppet like Nabal for a husband? Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at two people and thought, my goodness, you know, how how did did you, you are punching above your weight, mate. You know, how did you, how did you get that? 
But Abigail was this intelligent, beautiful woman. She's ended up with Nabal. Is this church matchmaking gone wrong again? Have you seen church matchmaking? It's not good. We don't do it here. Um, it, this would have been an arranged marriage. All right. So she probably didn't look at this guy and think, my goodness, you are everything I ever dreamed of in a man. She was probably forced into it. Money was probably involved and she probably wanted away from him every day of her life. She is not only intelligent and beautiful, but she is resourceful. How is she going to get the attention of David? Food. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins. That would have done it for me without all the other stuff. And 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. So she gets all of this food (laughs) to go and win the favor and win an audience with these men in the wilderness. She is resourceful. She is quick. She acted quickly. She didn't faff around, didn't procrastinate and delay, but moved fast. And her, her beauty actually literally is described as, as being one of beautiful countenance. That's what the words literally say. A beautiful countenance. A beautiful face. And you know that phrase, this is really interesting. That phrase is only used in the Bible of one other person. That, that is, one other human. One other person who is described as having a beautiful countenance. And you don't have to go far to find it. It's David. (laughs) He's described as he comes on the scene in 1 Samuel 16 as being ruddy. I think that means he had red hair. (laughs) He was ruddy and had a beautiful countenance. But he's lost sight of the beauty of God and now there stands before him one who is going to remind him of the beauty that he's missed. His face now is probably marked by worry, weariness, lines etched on his forehead, just looking tired. His face has become like his actions. His actions are ugly and unattractive and his face is probably etched with similar features. But now stands before him the only other person in the Bible who is described as having a beautiful countenance. And as David looks at her, she is one of these characters who I'm saying she knows her God and she stands firm and she takes action. And as David looks at her, he starts to be reminded of the beauty of God. Not a, not a, a beauty that is to do with romance or to do with lust, but a, the beauty of God is now staring back at him again. And he's seen what he missed. And her courage, as his weariness meets her beauty, her courage is is incredible. She gets off her donkey and bows down before David with her face to the ground. Ladies, don't worry about that. That's just culture, all right? That's not not something that, that you should mimic. But her courage is beautiful. And society needs to see the beauty of courage, real courage. Not arrogance and defiance and stubbornness, but courage to stand up in the face of ugliness and say, this is wrong. 
this is wrong. I'm going to stand firm and take action because this is wrong. And not only is her courage beautiful, but her words are beautiful. Look at what she says to David. She says, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. She reminds David of who he is. That he's not a bloodthirsty savage in the wilderness trying to get revenge on this fool Nabal. She reminds him who he is, that he's the king and he's going to have a dynasty. He's going to have a lineage that we know will even lead to Christ. She reminds him whose battles he fights. You fight the Lord's battles, David. What are you doing strapping on your sword and going after a fool? Why are you wasting your time and your resources and your energy? Why are you potentially putting your people at risk going off to fight a battle that is not the battle God called you to fight? How much time, I wonder, do we spend fighting battles that God has not called us to fight? Hmm? Everybody has nabals who come and go in life. And you know what? You can get so burnt out fighting against them and they are fools. And it is a waste of time. When meanwhile God has called us to great fights, glorious fights, noble fights, like David had been called to. And we neglect those things and, and run and burn ourselves out running after petty little squabbles. Christians are really good at this. We're so We're just... It's a shame, it's a disgrace how we will get into petty bickering with one another over nothing. And all the while, the huge battles that God has called us to remain unfought or even worse, lost. Or we burn ourselves out fighting with a Nabal in work, fighting with a, a family member who is acting foolishly and we lose sight of what we should be doing. She says to him that the Lord, or the life of my Lord, referring to David, she says, your life will be bound securely in the bundle of the living. What on earth does that mean? It basically means, David, your life is really precious to God and he is going to wrap it up, like, like putting something precious in a, in a wallet or a leather bag or something and wrapping it up securely and holding it tightly, bundling it up. She says, that's your life, David. You're precious to God. She reminds him how precious he is. And then in verse 29, she says about the enemies of David, like Nabal and like Saul and like others, the lives of your enemies God will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Bang! <laughs> the magic word. Not just any old word. She could have used any old word there to, to express what she wanted to express. But she specifically says, God's going to hurl your enemies away from you like something coming out of a sling. And she knows what she's doing. Because she knows what David has done in the past with a sling. And she reminds David, this is how you fight your battles. This is how you fight the battles that God has called you to fight not what you're doing now with your sword and your 600 bloodthirsty men and your, your desire for revenge. Think about how you used to fight. Do some of you, do I, do we need to hear that? That we are currently maybe living in a way and fighting in a way that is not the way we used to fight. Not the way we used to, to engage in the battles that the Lord has called us to. 
one of the things that I really want to get right as, as, as we move back into sort of normality, the magic word, is that it doesn't just involve, let's just do everything we used to do and do it bigger and better and all get really tired really quickly. But to make sure that we are fighting the Lord's battles the way he has called us to. Every now and again, I go into the prayer room in there and I think, my goodness, this room has been vacant for way too long when it used to be occupied a lot of the time. Have we lost sight of the sling and the river and the stone and being on our knees fighting the Lord's battles? Have we got all hasty and trying to do it our own way? This David approached a giant on his knees and is now approaching a drunken fool with an army of 600 men full of rage. Can, is Abigail standing in front of you this morning? Obviously not me. <laughs> but is in your imagination, in your heart, is there an Abigail in front of you saying, you're, you're fighting, this is not the way you used to fight. This is not the way you used to live. You're tired. You're tired and you've lost who you are. You've lost the beauty of God in the wilderness in your tiredness. Her words were powerful. Isaiah writes of, uh, of words in, in chapter 50, verse 4. He says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, so I know how to encourage tired people. Do we have the gift of being able to do that? Do we have a God-anointed, well-taught tongue that we know the word to speak to tired people? She doesn't go to David and say, David, you're an idiot. You should be ashamed of yourself. You ever, you ever get that way maybe with somebody and you're really frustrated and you just want to go and give them a good shake down with your words? That's not this. <laughs> That's not the well-taught tongue that knows how to encourage tired people. She comes along gently. David, remember who you are. Remember who your God is. Remember the call that he has put on your life. Not only were her words beautiful, but her very name is beautiful. It means my father is joy. And the joy that David lost in his weariness is now in front of him again, reminded him. Her name, her very name, when she introduced itself, is like, hi, my father is joy. <laughs> and David, in his, in his weariness, he has previously met beauty, and, and, and now he's meeting joy as Abigail stands before him. His response is amazing. In fact, it's even better in the King James Version. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou. He's just thrilled to have been stopped in his tracks by this beautiful, intelligent, courageous woman. He says to her, I've heard your words. With his 600 men watching them and without becoming uh, overly dark in, in the thinking or the subject matter. These 600 men haven't seen a beautiful woman in a long time. And for her to go and stand in front of them was a very, very risky thing to do. And as they, st as they are behind David watching to see how he responds, he says to this little woman, I have heard your words. 
Amazingly, some preachers and writers have criticized Abigail, saying that she should have been at home submitting to her husband Nabal instead of going to challenge David. (laughs) Maybe an agenda (laughs) at work there. David listened to her. He didn't say just you, he didn't diminish her. He didn't put her down. He says, you just toddle it on home, love. Know your place. No, he listened to her. He knew what was before him was a representative of the God whose beauty he had lost sight of. He didn't say, don't you know who I am? (laughs) I don't need you. I'm the Lord's anointed. I don't need your advice. I'm always in the right. I'm always the one who who knows how how to do things and do them right at any particular time. I'm not taking advice from anyone, especially not you. But in front of all his men, he listens to her. And she goes back to Nabal and finds him drunk and decides not to talk to him that night because he's drunk. The next morning she goes to him and she tells him that she's been to David. And we read that his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. David, fight the battles that I have called you to fight. Fight them in the way I have called you to fight them. I'll take care of the Nabals. I'll take care of the fools. Is there a Nabal who is eating up too much of your time and your mental energy? Have you ever found yourself just playing it over in your mind thinking, next time I'm talking to that person, I'm going to say this, 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 and this. (laughs) Or last time, I wish I'd said that. Or I regret saying this. And you find yourself just just giving way too much of your thinking to a scenario, to a Nabal. And God would say, I'll deal with it. You keep fighting the battles that I've called you to. And David does the only sensible thing. He marries her. He's not going to let this one get away. She's intelligent. She's wise. She has integrity. She has beauty. She reminds him of who he is. She reminds him of who God is. And he marries her. And we end up with this band of bloodthirsty warriors halted in their tracks by a woman armed with some fruitcake. (laughs) Amazing. And don't be thinking that her, her actions were minor and that she merely was trying to save her own life and maybe save the life of her husband and a few of her relatives. She had a lot to gain by getting rid of Nabal. I'm sure he did not treat her particularly well. And she probably every day in her life dreamt about this man dying so that she could be free. But she wasn't there to to achieve that. She wasn't there to help David kill Nabal. She was there to help David remember who David was. She was there, beauty in the midst of all this ugliness, not to save her family or Nabal. She was there to save David. And God honored her by killing Nabal. I'll take care of your husband. I'll take care of the one who oppresses you. You go and represent me to David. She was pivotal in reminding David of the beauty of God. She was pivotal in reminding David of the joy of God. In the absence of Samuel, who had died, who who had brought the call of God to David, she now became God's mouthpiece into David's life to remind him of that call. She knew God. She stood firm. She took action. And she was completely different to everything that was going on around her. 
completely different. I think in that picture, the flower is growing out of shells, cartridges, or not cartridges, but shells, empty shells from a rifle. In the midst of war and bloodshed and destruction, she is something completely different to what's going on around her. Beauty in the midst of the ugliness. In 1 Samuel 24, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. He has another opportunity to kill Saul in 1 Samuel 26. And in the middle, you've got this encounter with Abigail. And just like last week, I finished off by saying how Jonathan's behavior impacted David and impacted history. If Jonathan hadn't fought those Philistines with his armor bearer, David might have never heard the story of it and might never have taken down Goliath. If Abigail had not stood in front of David here, if David had gone and slaughtered Nabal's household and then 1 Samuel 26 with the blood still on his hands and the scent of blood in the noses of his men, he probably would have slaughtered Saul as well in 1 Samuel 26. How history would have changed if Abigail had not done what she did, stood up and taken action. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 1, that God chooses, God chose the weak things. As he writes about the cross, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The history makers, the world changers, the people who change a community, a town, a culture, an environment, are never the people you would expect to do it. It'll always be the little people that you would overlook the unqualified, the uneducated, the, the, the non-eloquent, whatever. It will be the people, the, the simple, ordinary people who know their God and stand firm and take action that will see the environment change. So are you, are you a David this morning? Are you weary and you've lost sight of joy and beauty and you need just to see Abigail in front of you calling you back to it or would you be an abigail who would have the courage to stand in front of an army and just say this isn't right and start to remind people who they are people who know their god stand firm and take action let's pray and let's worship together iron if you want to come forward